Okay, please pray with me. Uh, Father, we ask for your help this morning trying to just discern um, truths that are in the scriptures, but God, truths that are not fully known as you always leave mystery in your ways of salvation, especially when we're dealing with the Holy Spirit and his workings. God, I pray that you would help us to give us understanding to the degree that we can, that we're able, and the degree that you are willing to reveal to each one of us. And God, we know that you work um, in different timings with, with our sanctification individually. And Lord, I just pray that you would help all of us to, to grow this morning as a result of this teaching in whatever way you see um, right. And so, God, we ask for you to help us discern these truths. Help us to realize that they are from you and not of man. Open our hearts to be open to your sovereignty over our lives. We praise you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who, because of him, we can even be praying to you in boldness directly with you right now. And we trust that you are with us. We love you and we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are picking back up on the last week of this gospel um, series. We're, we're going over the Unsaved Christian series. We've been talking about cultural Christianity, and we took a quick little pit stop at the gospel, um, right, with the understanding that if we are going to look at cultural Christianity, how pervasive it is, especially in America, even here in Spokane Valley, well, then how do we engage with them from an evangelistic point of view? And we want to make sure we have a good refresher on what the gospel is. But even more importantly, not just what it is, but just being reminded the power that rests within the gospel and how God works in salvation. And I think this can be overlooked really easy, right? We look at salvation and, you know, is this... It's on us to evangelize. We go like we just do. We're, we just go solo. It's on us. We got to convince someone that these things are true, and we got to get them to say yes. And then we got to invest in their lives. And these are all good things, but we can't forget that there is a supernatural element to salvation. The Holy Spirit is very, very busy when it comes to salvation, and so that's my hopes um, for this lesson here as a refresher. Uh, just real quick recap from last week. We talked about the gospel call. We went through what the gospel call is, and we concluded that uh, it calls men to do something. It demands a response. And last week we talked about that response is to repent. Uh, we talked about, let's see, believe and confess Jesus is Lord and to receive Christ. And as we went through these things, we, we said these are a little more complex than typically noted, right? That repentance is not just feeling guilty over a sin. Repentance is not even just stopping to do a sin. There's more to it. It's, it's going a different direction. It's the putting off, but not just staying there. It's been putting something new on, as Ephesians 4 talks about. So repentance is a change in direction. Um, we talked about believing and confessing is a change in desires. To truly believe in Jesus and to confess Jesus, Gloria, do you want to share what you shared with me earlier? Do you mind if I put you on the spot about confession? Um, yeah, what you were sharing with, with just, you were thinking more about this. and.
Yeah. So that's a huge, I never really thought something about that before. Yeah. Big commitment. Big commitment, yep. It, it, it required counting the costs a lot because you're right, your, your very life could be at stake by confessing and believing. And we talk about belief being being uh, like that parachute, right? Like I believe this parachute saves lives. I believe I can. it can be used when you're falling out of a plane, but you've got to actually put it on and it. Um, so we talked about how believing confession really rests around a change in desires and then receiving Christ. We talked about how that's not just bringing Jesus in as an accessory to your life or an add-on, but as key, right? That to receive Christ means that you have to get off the throne. And I think that's the part that's often missed. It's not just, okay, I have everything that I want. I got my good job, my family, everything's going great, and I'm just going to put Jesus in that pile with it. It's no, Jesus is coming in as a new king to take reign over my heart. Um, so all these things result in change. And it strips us of our trust and reliance on self, which is where we were at the starting point. This is where we concluded that a cultural Christian is still relying and trusting in themselves uh, by, by resting on morality and works and civic religion. And this now shifts to a trust and reliance on God. So we say, great, this person's a new Christian New life, new person, this is where we ended last week, that they're born again. Now this is where we have to step back a bit as there's some very important aspects to consider when it comes to what we learned about the gospel message and how one actually becomes a Christian. A big area we hit on last week was this misuse of Revelation 3, which is very popular in American evangelism today. And it falsely teaches that Christ is standing at the door of someone's heart and knocking. And if they simply just let him in, salvation will come to them. And though we talked in depth about how this is not the context of what's going on in Revelation 3, that Christ is actually standing at the door of a church in Laodicea, not someone's heart. And this church is uh, one of seven in Revelation, right, that is actually being rebuked because they are lukewarm. They're doing church with Christ outside of it. So everyone's in church having service, but Christ has nothing to do with it. So that's the picture Revelation 3 paints. However, it's been used to depict instead this idea that Jesus is standing at the door of someone's heart, waiting to be received, waiting for them to open it up to them. And though this is not the context, this idea has exploded. And like toothpaste squeezed out of a tube, it's not going to go back in. So this invitation to simply let Jesus into your heart has become the primary message of today's evangelist, right? Replacing the biblical gospel, which calls men to repent, believe, and confess Jesus as Lord, and to receive him as king. So a decision does have to be made, yes, absolutely. But it's not a decision to let someone into your life. It's a decision to completely abandon your life, to live a new one. And this then begs a question. Is a decision really all that stands in the way of a sinner becoming a saint? Namely, is a decision really the thing that makes a carnal, sinful creature convert into a beloved child of God? Is a decision the thing that turns a sinner and transforms them 
into a saint? Unfortunately, I think that many American evangelists today would say, yeah, an intellectual or simple verbal decision is all you need to become a Christian. And I think the fact that cultural Christianity is now rampant and we have to have a whole series of studying how to evangelize it is fruit of this teaching. See, responding to the gospel call does require man to choose. Absolutely. But if we were to just stop there and end it there, we'd be missing an essential piece of the gospel, and that is conversion. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So to become a Christian requires not just a decision, but it requires a whole new life. A miracle literally has to happen. It's required to convert a dead sinner to a living saint. And that is what today's lesson is focused on. That, that is why it's titled The Gospel Call and True Conversion, not The Gospel Call and True Decision. And it's too easy to become familiar with words, right? To the point where we use them all the time. But they sort of evolve and no longer mean what they once meant before. And this is an actual thing that's called semantic change, or better known as semantic drift. Semantic drift is defined by Wikipedia as a form of language change regarding the evolution of word usage, usually to the point that the modern meaning is radically different from the original usage. Are there words that you can think of that are good examples of this, words that we use today that used to mean something different? Words that come to my mind are words like awesome, uh, gay came up, you know, it used to mean happy and joyful, and it has a whole new meaning today. Uh, an interesting fact, the word nice used to mean foolish, ignorant, frivolous, and senseless. And now the word nice means to be kind or thoughtful. So it's interesting how these words can drift. And similarly, I think we have semantically drifted when it comes to very important gospel terms that the Bible uses versus how they're used today. For example, if someone becomes a new Christian, it's common to hear phrases like, I have new life in Christ, I've been made new, or the big one, I've been born again, right? I'm a born again Christian, and I have converted to Christianity. Well, a lot of these words are used in the Bible. We see them in the Bible. Words like conversion and born again, new life in Christ. The Bible can define these um, in ways that relate to salvation in how the scriptures uh, explain it and define it. But today, these words can take on a whole new meaning, a whole new meaning of what it means to have new life in Christ or to say you're born again. Um, there's a, a lot of Christian songs I looked up that are titled Born Again or have to do with being born again. And when you look at the lyrics, the, the thought behind being born again is really kind of the after effects of making a decision and having a life change of being a Christian. So, for example, uh, the artist would go on to say just how, you know, they look back a couple years ago and they're just they're, they're a different person. Um, they've changed their ways and their life is uh, drastically different now as a Christian, and so they're born again. And, you know, there's some there's some truths in there, right? But is that really what born again means 
in the Bible, especially when Jesus, for example, is telling Nicodemus that he must be born again. Um, so these terms, new life, I've been made new, and I've converted to Christianity, um, have semantically drifted from what the Bible means them to mean into how we can look at them today. So there's a conversion disconnect. We've talked about a gospel disconnect uh, about a month back, and now we're going to address this conversion disconnect. We're, we're, we're disconnected from what true conversion of a Christian actually means. And perhaps what leads to this conversion disconnect today is the common practice where many convert to different religions. I mean, some multiple times throughout their life. Right? There are so many religions out there to choose from today. And we know that this happens as people age and they change. I mean, you may hear of Frank, who used to be Jewish, but after traveling through Asia, he was inspired and he converted to Buddhism. Or Rebecca, who converted from Catholicism to Mormonism after she ended up dating a Mormon for a couple of years. So this idea of converting over to religions whenever someone wants via a simple uh, experience or emotional decision is also assumed with Christianity. See, Christianity kind of falls into that same bucket of all these religions to choose from that you can convert to. Conversion to Christianity uh, is defined this way by Wikipedia. This is really interesting. It says, conversion to Christianity is the religious conversion of a previously non-Christian person that brings about changes in what sociologists refer to as the convert's root reality, including their social behaviors, thinking, and ethics. The sociology of religion indicates religious conversion was an important factor in the emergence of civilization and the making of the modern world. Conversion is the most studied aspect of religion by psychologists of religion, but there's still very little actual data available. Neurological studies have determined that conversion is not the result of pathology. We thought that was pretty funny, that last line there in Sunday school. Um, conversion to Christianity is the religious conversion of a person that brings about changes in their social behaviors, thinking, and ethics. It's interesting to think what's missing from this definition, as we know of biblical Christianity. Right? Do you see anything missing under this listing that changes when someone converts to Christianity? And most of the common answers in Sunday school were... were the heart, right? There's, there's nothing mentioning changes in the heart or in the spiritual uh, nature of the person. These are all just external changes in behavior. So, what is that saying out there that makes Christianity uniquely different from any other religion, right? It typically goes something like this. Other religions are man seeking after God, and Christianity is the only religion where God seeks after man. So this is what makes Christianity so unique. You know, there aren't other religions out there that start first with man having to be completely transformed spiritually. You know, there aren't religions out there where the very first step is some kind of awakening, transformation. Really, only Christianity has that when we talk about things like the new birth. Instead, when it comes to other religions, it's usually man having to make the, the decision to follow, and then they have to work their way through years of becoming more and more spiritual over time. So they kind of start at zero, and then they kind of work and have to progress through spirituality, becoming more spiritual um, as time goes on. 
And this is very important to understand when it comes to how people become Christians. See, conversion doesn't start after one decides to repent, believe and confess and receive Christ, all motivated by their own power. No, conversion happens before they can even embrace the gospel, and their decision is fueled by God's power. Paul Washer, in his book, says genuine conversion is the result of a supernatural work of God by which the very heart or nature of a person is changed, making him responsive to the will of God. So this is what is doctrinally known as regeneration. And this is what this lesson today is focused on. So regeneration can be defined um, as the new birth that is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in which he imparts new spiritual life into the dead soul of a sinner. Regeneration is also known as being born again or being born of God or being born from above. I love the way one theologian simply explains the new birth. He says the new birth is the life of God implanted into the soul of man. The new birth is the life of God implanted into the soul of man. We see Jesus teach this very thing to Nicodemus in John 3, John 3, 1 through 12. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, as one, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So think of what stands out to you here of why Jesus specifically would have to tell a man like Nicodemus that he has to be born again. When we discussed this in Sunday school, a lot of responses were around the fact that Nicodemus was a learned man. He, he had Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had studied the scriptures. He had them memorized. He knew everything there was to know as far as rote memorization, the law. And typically, in that scenario, if someone like a Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, is used to saying or living with the mentality of, just tell me what to do to be righteous and I'll go do it. And now there's a new guy, there's a new kid in the block, right? Jesus Christ. And he's seeing he's a teacher and he comes up to him and is basically saying, teacher, you're saying you're from heaven. And that may be true because what you're doing is pretty miraculous. So what must I do? What would you have me do to inherit the kingdom? And it's interesting that Jesus' response is in a way saying, you can do nothing. You have to be born again. 
And we talked about this last week where, you know, here we have Nicodemus, who's a very smart man, and Jesus, of course. Nicodemus most likely does not believe that Jesus is literally telling him he needs to, you know, literally be born again from his mother's womb. That's impossible. And we know that rabbis, they used to speak in parables all the time. So Nicodemus' response is really around this idea of having to start all over in his learning journey, having to start over in his spiritual journey. As if Jesus is saying, well, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom, you have to become a whole new person and start all over again. And I think this is why this truth was so hard for Nicodemus to grasp. And we see this taught all throughout other scriptures, John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Titus 3.5 He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 John 2.29 If you know he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And 1 John 5.1 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So regeneration is the life of God implanted into the soul of man. This is what's true conversion of a sinner into a saint looks like. So if you're a Christian, you have literally experienced a miracle in your life. Have you ever thought about that? If you are a believer today, you can say that you have witnessed a miracle because it literally was a miracle. As Jesus had to turn water into wine through a miracle, so you have been brought from death to life spiritually. He has done a miracle to you, transforming your heart into becoming a believer. So our next point here is who is involved when it comes to regeneration? Who is involved? The next critical understanding of the new birth is that it is an act done by God to man without consent. Man does not play any role in being born again and cannot reject being born again. This is why it's considered to be what's called monergistic. Now, monergism or monergistic is a uh, big theological term, but it's uh, defined really well here by John Murray, one of the foremost theologians of the 20th century. He writes, Regeneration is the act of God and of God alone. In other words, regeneration is monergistic, meaning that the grace of God is the only efficient cause in beginning and effecting conversion. The key word here is only. God is the only cause behind the new birth. The opposite of monergism is synergism. 
This latter word is derived from the Greek word synergos, meaning working together. According to the theory of synergistic regeneration, both the divine and human wills are active and each must cooperate with each other. But what does the scripture teach? According to James 1.18, of his own will he brought us forth, an unmistaking, unmistakably monergistic statement. John 1.12-13 reads, All who did receive him, who believed in his name, were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This view of the new birth could not be more monergistic. John 3.8 says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Man does not effect the movement of the Spirit. God does. So understandably, anything done without consent is typically looked at as violating, right, in our culture. And it is, right? We, we, we see anything done without consent as not being okay. But we have to remember, this is not a human-on-human -human interaction here. We're talking about our holy God who is enacting this. I mean, he is the clockmaker, <laughs> and we are the clock with all the little parts and gears. Doesn't he have every right to open us up and to make adjustments and to do maintenance and to do what's needed to his creation. And just as God didn't ask you permission to be born into this world, you didn't consent to that, just as you don't consent to your second birth, right? You were born into this world without consent and you were born again spiritually all the same. The wind blows where it wishes, and you don't see it coming or going, but you see its effects. That's what that means. If you're outside on a windy day, you can't visibly see that the wind is coming and prepare for it, right? It comes and goes, but what you can see is what it touches and what it's impacting and affecting by looking at the tree that's blowing. It's a very interesting illustration. So regeneration is a sovereign act of God, whereby his grace he chooses to pursue the sinner before they even have a clue what was about to happen. He awakens them from spiritual death to life where they can have the ability to answer the gospel call and forever be his. We see this prophesied in Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. A question was asked, what things stand out to you in these verses in regards to um what we're seeing here in Ezekiel. And a lot of the answers were just focused on the use of I, how God is saying, I will give you a new heart. 
I will give you a new spirit. I will remove this heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. This is where we really see monergism taking effect. So as we think about the the painting of God knocking on the door of a heart that we looked at last week, this door, if we remember, had no handle on the outside. And that was intentional by the artist to depict that God is standing outside the door and, and he can't grab a latch or a handle and open it to walk in. He has to wait for someone to welcome him in. And based on what we learned this morning, it falsely teaches that the human heart is off limits to God, right? That God cannot interact with our hearts unless we give him consent. But the scriptures tell us that God has full rights to the human heart without consent. We see this many times in the Old Testament. One of the biggest examples probably that come to mind is when God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And we see this in the New Testament when God opens Lydia's heart to Paul's teaching. You see this in Acts 16, 13 through 14. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we, were suppo- where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So regeneration is a miracle where God removes a person's dead heart and replaces it. He gives them a new living heart that changes the way they think and what they desire. So our last point, why does man need to be born again? Well, we covered a lot of this when we were breaking down the gospel, but it's key to understanding why man needs to be born again in the first place. And the answer really centered around humanity's nature, right? Do we by nature walk in sin or do we by nature walk in righteousness? And a good illustration of this is when we look at the nature of of an animal, right? If an animal is a carnivore, they're labeled a carnivore, not because they prefer to eat meat over vegetables or, or leafy greens. It's not a preference choice. And then they can check the box that they prefer. No, they're a carnivore because they they're that way by nature. They're hardwired to where they see meat, that equals food. If they see a dead carcass and they're hungry, they know that that dead carcass that has flesh and meat equates to food. If they walk by plants, that does not compute as food. So if they're starving and they're around a bunch of lush plants that have vitamins and nutrients, they're likely not going to go munch down on a bunch of plants because they just don't even comprehend that. Right? And similarly, a herbivore will not see a dead carcass full of meat and think, wow, that looks delicious, because they're not wired that way by nature. So this is what we're talking about on why man needs to be born again in the first place, is there's an issue with our nature. Jeremiah 13, 23 speaks to this. In an interesting um, example, it's kind of a hypothetical question. He says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. So it's kind of this silly question of saying, can a dark man make himself have light skin or can a leopard remove the spots? Of course they can't because they're naturally born that way. 
So then he's saying, if a leopard can change his spots and change nature, then you can start doing good who are accustomed to evil. So it's this reverse way of saying man's nature is evil. And this is why we need to be born again. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 really explains this well. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Humanity are sinners from birth because they have a nature to sin. So humanity has a faulty heart from birth. The only remedy then for them to seek righteousness or to ever change is to get a heart transplant. We need a new heart. Mark 7, 21 through 23 um, kind of puts some more color to this. It says, For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things that are evil come from within, and they defile a person. So it's interesting, if we talk about being born again, we, we really are having two births, right? Our first birth brings us into this world as a child of Adam, right? Adam is our representative. He represents us. And, and that brought on corruption and spiritual death. But our second birth brings us into the kingdom as a child of God, where we are righteous and spiritually alive. So we conclude here with what does regeneration do? We covered so much about a dead sinful heart. So let's consider a new heart. What does a new heart transplant do to a man? Well, first it converts man's heart. So our, our dead, spiritually dead, rock solid heart that's not beating any spiritual life into us now starts pumping and it's pumping life through our body. And we know the scriptures talk about how man's heart is what is really the, the engine that drives, that drives us. Everything that comes from our mouth comes from our heart. Our heart is the epicenter of our emotions that go to our brain. Everything we think comes from the heart. So when we sin verbally with our mouth, it's coming from our heart, but we can also sin in our mind with our thoughts, right? lusting after somebody, just even in our mind, as Jesus says, is committing adultery in our heart. So, regeneration converts a man's heart to a living, breathing, pumping heart. It changes man's nature then. So if asked the question, can a leopard change his spots? No. But if that nature is changed, then it can become a whole different creature. And that's essentially what happens to man at regeneration. They get a new heart, and that starts to change the nature of a man. Instead of just wanting sin all the time, 
just wanting self all the time, it can now look elsewhere. It can look up to the cross and see the cross as needed, as beautiful. So man's nature begins to change. And then it then that nature changes and changes man's desires. It opens eyes to the gospel message. It opens eyes to your what your hands do to the evil it does and you can look at yourself and actually admit man i am a sinner look at these evil things that i think and that i do and i need a savior jesus so it converts man's heart it changes man's nature then then that changes man's desires and then it enables man to start producing spiritual fruit so we use this illustration of two trees one tree with no roots and uh, as a result of no roots, it, it had no fruit. It was just a dead tree. And this really is what cultural Christianity looks like when we're just talking about a intellectual decision. If a cultural Christian can just profess Jesus with their mouth, but there's no new birth, there's no roots, no spiritual fruit will, will be able to um, be produced. There could be Little, little things that look like fruits, sure, absolutely. But when we're talking about spiritual fruit, we're talking about, imagine a healthy fruit tree that's consistent, right? You can expect it to grow fruit every season. And, uh, and, and not only is it growing fruit every season, but that fruit, um, it, it expands. It exponentially grows. And the fruit gets sweeter and sweeter over time. This is a tree that has roots that are rooted in the new birth that are rooted in a new heart that is pumping spiritual life into the soul of a person. So the gospel call, what is it calling man to do? As we talked about last week, the gospel calls man to repent. It calls man to believe and confess. And the gospel calls man to receive Christ. All of these things of which cannot be done without the new birth. It's the new birth that allows man to see the sin they're doing to not only stop but to turn towards light when we talk about repentance the new birth is what allows a man to believe and confess with their mouth to truly confess jesus as lord no matter what the cost is and to put on christ by believing remember we talked about belief as being a parachute you could see the parachute and you could believe that it saves lives but if you don't put that parachute on and use it your life will not be saved and the gospel calls man to receive Christ. We talked about this as receiving Christ as not as an accessory or an add-on, but to literally receive him as Lord, which means you need to get off the throne. That cannot be done unless the nature of a man is changed. That new heart allows man to see themselves as worthless on the throne, as um, unqualified, unfit to sit on a throne and to gladly step off and say, Lord, please come and have a seat on the throne of my heart. I want you to, to be Lord of my life moving forward. So to become a Christian requires not just a decision, but it requires a new life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these truths would sink in deep to the listeners. Um, these are hard truths, no doubt. They're complicated. There's so many um, things that we just can't know for sure. There's so much mystery to how your Holy Spirit works. And I just pray that 
if anything, we would look at the truths of your text and just embrace the sweetness of what it says about you approaching us and saving man when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We pray that you would get the glory in all these things, Lord, and just pray that these would move us more and more towards your throne, would lead us more towards bearing this sweet fruit. We thank you for Christ for making all this possible, and it's his name we pray. Amen.